Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're here in the 51st Psalm this, this morning, the 51st Psalm, and uh, we have turned yet another uh, heading that is found in this one. Uh, the last several weeks, we looked at several that dealt with the sons of Korah. Last week in the 50th Psalm, it was the Psalm of Asa. And then here in the 51st Psalm, it is, of course, the Psalm ascribed to David. Uh, you know, as we come to this particular psalm, um, it's one that is very familiar to anyone that has been a regular reader of the psalms or one that may have done a study in the psalm or perhaps if you took a class once uh, in school or an extension or something along that lines in the psalms, it's very familiar to it. It's often one that is pointed out with it's one that's near and dear to the hearts of Christian. In many sense, it might be one of the most familiar psalms in all of the book of psalms. Uh, namely, not unlike the 119th psalm and the 23rd psalm. But yet, when you come to go and preach, particularly and go through, somewhat expositorily through these 19 verses, you would think that it would be easy because the psalm is so familiar. In fact, I, I guess I wasn't... Uh, 10, 11 years old, and we had a missionary come in uh, to church, and he sang um, verse number 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. Had a little guitar, you know, and he was picking and he sang that, and I was like, well, I, and I remember all those years since, I could probably, you wouldn't appreciate it as much maybe, but I could sing that. It's familiar. And sometimes when we come to a familiar passage, it can sometimes be difficult uh, or challenging might be a better word to preach through it, in part because often it's not the whole psalm that is familiar, it's what we associate the psalm with and how we associate it. Uh, in fact, I would say as I have studied through this over the last week or so, it, it's going to be challenging a little bit. But this is no doubt a psalm that's been a blessing to many people over the years. It's a psalm of David's uh, beseeching God for forgiveness, and no doubt one of which uh, every one of us at one point or time have considered verses out of this psalm as we seek to maintain our walk with God as well. Uh, this is the first of a series of psalms in the second book that will be ascribed unto David. In fact, from here forward to the end, I think it's the uh, 72nd or 89th psalm, to the second book, the second grouping of these psalms, all of the rest of the Psalms are Psalms of David with four exceptions. And three of those four exceptions are just unascribed. It means preceding the first verse, there's no inscription. And then there's one, the 72nd Psalm, I believe, that's ascribed to Solomon. So from here forward, as we study through book two of the Psalms, uh, you'll just remember that almost all of them are Psalms of David. Um, there is an interesting point in this psalm uh, that sometimes critics have grabbed hold of to use as a refutation of, um, of the scriptures. But there in the 51st psalm, as it's ascribed to David, and we know that it was related in the ascription uh, unto that sin that he had with Bathsheba that's chronicled for us in the 12th and 13th chapter of 2 Samuel. And so we're thinking about David. But then you come down to the last two or three verses uh, of this psalm, and there's something interesting that is there. In fact, it would not sound Davidic at all. It would sound more in a relationship to something that would happen uh, post-diaspora, meaning after the carrying away. It would be something that you might would see in the time of Ezra or Nehemiah, uh, and that I'm referencing in verse number 
19, 17 and 19, where he's talking about building the walls of Jerusalem. Well, the walls were built in the day of David. And so some have grabbed onto this and say, aha, see that inscription is incorrect because obviously David would have never prayed to build the walls of Jerusalem. And I think an easy and very simple solution to consider with this is this matter. The Psalms is prophetical. The Psalms are inspired. Now you might think of inspiration in a sense of something that's encouraging to your heart. You went out and read a story and it was a feel-good thing, you know. But that, when I say inspiration, I'm talking of a divine theological sense. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it means that God breathed them. So while we ascribe this to David, he simply was moved, Peter mentions this, by the Holy Spirit of God, and that means God had purpose for this hymn. It was given regarding the time of his sin with Bathsheba. But David is not the author of this hymn. He didn't just dream it up and say, I'm going to pin it down. We read, uh, we just sang a hymn just a moment ago, Abide With Me. And that's a fascinating hymn history. It was penned by an English pastor on the twilight of his retirement. And he was going, he had been a pastor for practically all of his adult life. And now he's moving into the unknown. And now there's no more sermons to be prepared There's no more congregation to pray and to watch for in in the sense that a pastor would. He's having to relocate and deep within his soul there's there's angst and trouble. And from that with, in a night walk, he, he began to pray, abide in me. And that's where that hymn came from that we so often sing. Well, the author that penned, abide in me, the same penmanship is, or I should say the penmanship is not the same. David did not simply on this say, well, this, these are great words that I'm going to put together in a sense that they came from his own heart. The Holy Spirit of God moved upon him and God had many purposes and uses for this. One of those uses, is, if you will, is to have it pre-composed as a penitent prayer that will be used one day nationally by the nation of Israel in their future penitent state. This particular psalm goes beyond David's experience and can only be fully understood in the light, as you will, of the nation of Israel. There's a wonderful part of that, but as we speak through it this morning, we're not dealing so much with that as we are David's perspective and in the general theme of forgiveness from God. But just to correlate those two, there is a definitive purpose by which God will use this in the future. Uh, Another thing that I would note as you look through the 51st Psalm is there's often the characteristics of threes that seem to exist. Let me me just point out a few of them. And and as I get into the meat of the message, uh, they'll they'll come out in, Lord willing, greater clarity. But look in verse number one as he's beseeching God. Uh, He's going to beseech God by threes, by three specific things. He talks about mercy, loving kindness, and tender mercies. Three characteristics of God that he beseeches him for. When you come to verse number two, David is going to speak of three evils that he's committed. He's going to speak of his transgressions. That's the end of verse number one. He's going to speak of iniquities, and he's going to speak of sins. And as you move just down through all of these, even his uh, uh, three directives or imperatives in one sense that he's beseeching God of. He, he asked that God would purge him, wash him in verse number 7, 8, and uh, then in verse number 9, blot them out. There just seems to be a series of threes 
throughout these verses in this poetic state that you would sense in. And I thought that I would point this singular regard out. Also of interesting note in this passage, when we think of the sin of Bathsheba, it should be made, or, or the sin of David and Bathsheba, you should remember this. It was more than one sin. When we consider the sin of Bathsheba and David that is given in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we often speak in light of the immorality and adultery that was applied. But there was another sin. In this sin that occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 13, the other sin was murder. Two of them. Both equal violations of the Decalogue. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not... And he managed, in one frame of time, to trespass against both of those explicit commands of God. When we consider the life of David, he's king. We think of our civil society... Uh, I think one of the wondrous things about our, our civil government is, is how there is not a hereditary uh, progress of power. That we have elections and, and that we really don't have a king. In many ways, when you look at Old Testament Israel and some of the old nations in antiquity, uh, having a king was a wonderful thing in some regards. Because when you got a good king, he could undo so much bad in such a short period of time. He could just turn, as it were, the administration on its head and make things as he wanted to. You see that in the life of Uzziah when he goes in and there's been uh, generations before him that have done evil and the good king Uzziah comes in and man just turns everything upside down. But equally, there's no more catastrophic event that happens to a people than when a good king behaves like an immoral bad king. It undermines every good or potential good that he could possibly be done. There's an application for you and I, isn't there? One of the great responsibilities of spiritual leadership, be that in a home or in a church, does encompass upon ourselves behavior. And when one in a place of leadership transgresses the express commandments of God, it is a devastation, not only to themselves and to those in that immediate sphere, but also in the greater sphere of the influence that they could have. If David, the man after God's own heart, could with a level of impunity and deception have the valiant, faithful man that followed him, Uriah, executed as a covering for his own immorality, how forth would he be able ever to lead this nation of God in the future? The sin of David was cataclysmic in its activity. And the singular fact that I would remind once again, it did not happen on a whim. There's a series of choices that occur in the life of David that are brought to a grand refrain with these final sins. In fact, if you were to turn there and you look in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the scripture says, and it was the time that the kings go forth to war. 
but David didn't. I don't know why. I could speculate that he was weak in the flesh. His early years of his administrative, his kingdom had been full of heavy, heavy burdens. There were multiple interactions. He had to, from the get-go of his administration, he had from the very beginning of it, had to endure a civil war against people that would not acknowledge him as God's appointed king of Israel. And he would fight the descendants of Saul, Ishbosheth, I think by name. He would have to undergo the loss of men that were close to him, not the least of which was Ashiel, his nephew, that would fall in battle. There was turmoil in his home. There was difficulty. There was fam- There's all manner of difficulties that he could blame. There's giants that would have to be slain. There's the perpetual thorn in the side of the Philistines. I might would say that perpetually in the time of difficulty, perhaps the early sins and the warning signs, I should say, of David was the fact that he had decided to do things rather with the flesh than with the Spirit of God. You know, we can train our flesh to a certain level of spiritual behavior. You really can. Um, You can discipline yourself to speak politely in tough times. That's not necessarily a sign of the Spirit's indwelling or you're submissive to the Spirit in your life. You can keep your composure and choose not to be an angry man as is admonished in Ephesians chapter 4. But I would say there are people in the world that have exercised that same discipline. It's not the same thing as relying on the Spirit of God. And so often one of the early warning signs in our life is how distant we are from communing with the God of our salvation. Outwardly, nothing changed. Outwardly, David, at the moment when he was distancing himself with God, he didn't physically change. He looked like the same old David, but his heart had become far from the presence of God. Perhaps some of these calamities in life, he in fact blamed God for. Sometimes that's the beginning for some of us. That we look at something, a prayer that was not answered in the fashion to which we think it was. A time in where God did not use us and use someone else. A time in which critical attitudes were addressed towards us that were undeserving. And rather to allow them to be nailed to the cross of Christ, we've endeared ourselves unto them and we've opened up ourselves for all manner of our heart to be probed and poked by the deceitful lies of Satan. And that heart not recovered from its state in the Word of God begins down the road of an unfruitful pursuit of godliness or godlessness, I should say. Is this where David was? That he had looked to fence and his job as the king he became derelict in and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. There's plenty of other things that I can... Dare, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, distribute that authority to? You know... You can't distribute your responsibility to walk with God to anyone else. 
Your wife might be one of the most spiritual people to ever walk on terra firma, but she cannot be spiritual enough to be your spirituality. Your husband might be the greatest man to ever slap leather, but listen, he cannot be spiritual enough for your spirituality. The same would go for young folks, teenagers, and children. You could have the greatest, most godly parents, but your spiritual relationship and your spiritual walk are in fact yours. David had delegated his responsibility to someone else. For any or a number of these, David now is in the place where he has experienced God's judgment. And in this psalm of confession, well, let me, let me add one more thing to that, this judgment. And the dispensation to which David lived, it is interesting of note that the sins he committed had absolutely no Old Testament way of sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 3, you have the peace offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering. And they were to be applied for certain sins. But premeditated murder wasn't one of those. You know what the response for premeditated murder was? Execution. By the way, you know the response for adultery was? Execution. It was always given to be premeditated. For these particular premeditated sin, there was no offering that he could give. He couldn't go in there and give a lamb and then that would be atoned and it would be finished. He, couldn't go, he was not even then allowed to be even present should have been executed. Well, here's a great problem, isn't there? Who was the head of state responsible for the execution? David. Every Jew of worth his salt would have known this. Think of Micah. Micah talks about the sacrifices which one would offer. I think it's in chapter 5. He said, would the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Was a thousand rams going to cover David's sin? Or how about 10,000 rivers of oil? Micah goes on, shall I give my firstborn for a transgression? None of these would do. What was David to do to reach the state that he had left prior to committing these sins? Could he build a house of God of great majesty and splendor and God would be pleased with that? And God would just overlook his dastardly sins? I think Isaiah capitalizes on this in the 64th chapter where he says, we are all as an unclean thing. That's a, that's a powerful phrase, that unclean thing. In the Old Testament, you had certain people, particularly I think of leopards, leprosy. Do you remember? They weren't allowed to come into the tabernacle. They weren't allowed to offer the sacrifices. Where did they go? 
out yonder. This is the imagery that is described in these. David can't come to the tabernacle. I mean, he can because he's king, right? All the judges are his. He appointed them and nobody had to confirm them. All the sheriffs are his. He's absolute authority. No one save Nathan the prophet is going to confront this guy. And to do so could mean your very death. By Mosaic law, should have been executed. Presently, it's as though he's in the wilderness, like a, a person cursed with leprosy. No sacrifices to be made. Only, only in the distance can he hear the singing and the joy of the saints of God. Convicted by that song, unable to sing. He needs something greater than 10,000 rivers of oil. He needs something far to surpass a thousand rams. He needs a way back to God. And there's only one way back to God. And that is through the redemptive, exclusive work of Jesus Christ. Note here in the first portion of this, the cry. Verse 1 and 2. A cry. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This cry here, he petitions God. I would note to you that he bases this petition on certain of God's divine characteristics. His petition for forgiveness, this cry for forgiveness, is not predicated in David's self-worth. Now listen to what I'm saying here. Oftentimes, when a child of God has left the way of understanding, Proverbs chapter 6, I believe he says, He that leaveth the way of understanding shall dwell in the tabernacle of the dead. He's left that way of the understanding. Lust hath conceived... He's distance every man in this regard, James says. We think that God ought to simply redeem us or forgive us of our sins because of how good we were or how not so really bad our sin was. David mentions no person. He does not say, forgive me because I'm king. He does not say, forgive me. Because I once was a great man, and as a young, ruddy youth, slew a giant. He does not say, forgive me, because I'm of the lineage of Judah. He does not say, forgive me, because from me shall come the future Messiah. He petitions only God's characteristics. But I would note to which characteristics he petitions. He does not petition God's justice. You know why? What would justice require? His own death and abdication. And really that order would be reversed. Abdication than death. That's what happens if he petitions God's justice. That's why the marvelous teaching in the New Testament, careful about judgment that is given 
Friend, you don't want God to judge you in that sense. No, you want the blood of Jesus Christ whereby He has removed you from every sin and separated you from your transgression as far as the east is from the west. He petitions not God's judgment. He does not really petition any virtue of wisdom of God or of Himself. In fact, if He's petitioning wisdom of Himself, human logic by necessity would reject the very forgiveness that God offers. He does not petition any virtue of God's characteristic of His power, or the fact that He's omnipresent, or even of the fact of God being all-knowing. He directs his petition at the merciful nature of God. I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 33. Moses is is up. God's about to show him the glory of God. There's just been idolatry in the camp. It's a terrible time. And Romans chapter 9 that we're in last week, it deals with this very thing. And, And the Lord speaking says this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. David, realizing the truth of this nature of God, throws himself on the mercy, on the, tender, uh, uh, on the loving kindness, and on the multitude of his tender mercies. That is the characteristic to which he petitions God. Not only is there in verse number 1 this petition, but notice keen personal awareness in verse number 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, Cleanse me from my sin. I mentioned at the onset those threes that were present. Three particular aspects as it was a description of the mercy of God. But here's three particular aspects as it was to David's own actions. He lists his sin as three things. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. And though we often see them interchangeable, though we often define them synonymously, they are actually three different perspectives. Let me give them to you. He mentions at the end of verse number 1, transgressions. He'll mention it again in verse number 3. Transgression means this, crossing crossing the boundary line. Now, I suppose as a kid, I threw a baseball or a football and it went over into the neighbor's yard and I didn't ask the neighbor, I hopped the fence or went around the fence, maybe under the... And you go get the... That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in ancient days where you had geographical boundaries, rivers, creeks, lines, fields, mountains. And as long as each sovereign power stayed on their particular side of that boundary, there was peace. But when a sovereign of one country moves over said boundary into territory that was not theirs, to which they were innately refused admittance without permission, a transgression had occurred. Probably, probably historically, the most, one of the most famous ones was the River Rubicon. Do you remember this? Julius, Caesar, fighting the Gaelic Wars of Rome, having in his own army for all these years. Cassius and Pompey being separated and the Senate being in turmoil and all of this. He turned forth with his great divisions and headed back towards Rome and he stopped this side For to cross that river, to cross the Rubicon as it were, would be the same thing as launching an attack. And he forthwith later would move his troops across and he would seize Rome and set up himself as being the emperor. 
It was seen by many. It's an act of war. It is an act of open defiance, if you will, in the biblical sense. A transgression is a defiant, rebellious act against the express commands of God. God said to David. God said to Moses. God said to the subsequent children of Israel in betwixt, Thou shalt not kill And David blatantly disregarded God's person, God's command, God's God's power, God's judgment. He threw it all to the wind and says, I'm going to do so because after all, I can. The commandments equally decree, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it would seem in this moment that a transgression would occur, disregarding by blatant rebellion. Now, can I mention something else to you? Just the king before David, O Saul, the Benjamite, had blatantly disregarded God's command about sacrifice. There's a marked difference between the two. Transgression. Note in verse number 2. Verse number two, he moves from transgression to iniquity. Iniquity. Iniquity is the perversion. It is, in one sense, the depravity of our nature since our birth. Isaiah speaks of the fact that we have all gone astray. If you'll note in the Psalms here, I think it's in verse number five, he uses this. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. He's not talking about an illegitimate birth. He's talking about the human essence that from a very young child we have a sinful nature that is predisposed against anything of God's commandments and God's law, iniquity. And then the third element given in verse number 10 he mentions is sin. Sin is simply falling short. It's missing the mark, the standard, the way. And all three of these... David is keenly aware of. He uses them over and again in verses 3, 4, 5, 9, and 13. But I want you to know an important thing, and it's an important part about seeking forgiveness. He owns them. Look at verse number 2. Wash me thoroughly. Well, move back to verse number 1. I just want to get transgressions. He says, blot out, note the possessive there, my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Verse number 3, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before thee. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. And he goes on and on throughout these. See, the personal awareness, he realized his own sinfulness. He had missed the mark. He realized his iniquity that had consumed him. He realized that he had forthwith, ultimately, and positively transgressed the express commandments of God. Part of receiving forgiveness of God is a personal awareness that is brought by a public profession to the Almighty God. David had a need of mercy. Notice following in the following verses, there are some imperatives because of his awareness. He says there in verse number 1, the imperative, Have mercy upon me. In verse number 2, he says, Blot out my transgression. There's an interesting one when we think of blotting. In these ancient days, you know, as they would write something, they would take from thence, usually with like a, a sharp edge, and they would cut away any of the excess ink off of it. It's the blotting, if you will. It has the idea of removing or scraping off. 
in a sense to which David is using it, it is the idea of giving him a clean slate. Verse number 3, he says, wash me. Or verse number 2, rather, wash me thoroughly. That's a wonderful one. Removing all dirt and stain that he might be cleansed by God. Then finally, in the last part of verse number 2, that fourth imperative, cleanse me. Make me clean. It's hearkening back to the Old Testament rite of purification. It's a ritual process. Before the high priest would serve, there was a whole series of rituals that would take place. They're anointing, they're washing, they're clothing, they're putting away so that when they were brought out from the eighth day, they were prepared and ready for service and they were pure. The same was true of the leprosy. One was diagnosed with this case. After so many a time, they would come and the high priest would inspect them and if they were clean, there was a whole ordeal of purification before they could recommune in the temple and therewith with their God. David highlighting this, make me clean, wash me, purify me as though there is no stain whatsoever. This is his cry unto God. Verses 3 through 6 is the confession. Note, if you will, some more of these threes that are present in his confession. It says in verse number 3, there's an acknowledgement. For I acknowledge my transgression. What a keen part. I acknowledge it. Not just the action, but the motive. Not just the action and the motive, but a level that would bring a ceasing to it. A conclusion. A repentant heart, if you will. I acknowledge it. I recognize my action as sin. This often is a huge problem. Often confession is never truly made to God because of our blatant refusal to admit that our actions engaged in are not sinful. You know, there there seems to be in the 51st Psalm and the 32nd Psalm a lot of some parallels. In the 32nd Psalm, let let me read you this quickly. Also a a psalm of David. He says in verse number 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. Now David's going to mention something here. You can call it conviction. You can call it guilt. There's a distinction between the two. But note here in verse number 3, When I kept silent, Refuse to have confession. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. And then in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. It seems in this regard, David is speaking when he acknowledges there is the full confession of every aspect of the sin by which he committed. He moves on in these confessions to make yet another statement in verse number 4. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's a powerful expression. He recognizes that he knows his actions to be a transgression. Sin 
is ultimately always against God. Even a wrong against a neighbor, and, and this would be an extreme case here, but that's what David has. He sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against the country, but he doesn't label it as such. He says, I've sinned against thee and thee only. Ultimately, a sin, even against a neighbor, is ultimately a sin against God. You know, there, there are some sins. This is an, a side note here. When he mentions sin, there are sometimes. There are sometimes where a society doesn't call an action sin, but God does. Which one's right? God is the ultimate one that determines what is sin. Civil society does not ultimately determine morality. God does. You know, in our society, the sin he had with Bathsheba is not really a crime. The murder of Uriah would be, but not the sin. Ultimately, his behavior, you could say that he was responsible as a leader, have civil neglect of his responsibility, but that's not necessarily the end of the world for it. That's not a crime in that sense. What makes something a sin is because God, the creator of heaven and earth, has declared a line of definitive morality, and when you, I, or anyone else breaches that line... It's a sin. And if one wants forgiveness, there has to be a personal acknowledgement of what God said about a topic in action. Verse number 5 and 4, really, he speaks of his confession. Verse number 5, he says, I was shaped in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. Now listen, he's not blaming his mom for all his problems in life. He's taking personal responsibility. His inward nature... Yea, even from youth, had a, dispens- a disposition to sin against God. And because he was confessing, he saw a need not only for a covering or a cleansing or a purification, a forgiveness from the sin he committed, but for a greater extent, yea, for even for what he was as an individual. Many a great man like David, a uniter of the kingdoms, a deliverer of the people, would look at his birth, and history would in one sense, as being a day of celebration. For even they sing about David in his youth. As they sang about Saul killing his thousands, but David his ten thousands. But when David reflects upon his existence and goes back to what should be a very special time, even his birthday. Now, some of us deny our birthday, but others embrace the birthday. When David reflects upon the day of his birth and his conception, he does so to proclaim his birth as the beginning of his trouble. He's confirming that there's never been a time that he wasn't in a sinful state. Finally, in verse number 6, part of this confession, he states how sin is contrary to God. It's not what God wants. Verse 6, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me clean, or make me rather to know wisdom. Those are interesting uses. He, uh, he, I think he does it again in uh, 
in following verses, but he talks about the hidden parts and the inward parts. God's not looking for your simple outward conformity. He wants the genuine you to be holy as well. You know, we are three-partite, three parts of us. We've got a soul, a spirit, and a body. Sometimes in reference to that soul and spirit, things can get merged a little bit. But the body is what makes me world conscious. It's what you see me as. I was looking through some old photographs years gone by, and you can note how people change in their looks. Some of you, some of us, are shorter than we once were. Some of us have fewer hair follicles. You change in life. That's why when you meet someone that you haven't seen for a while and they see you, sometimes they barely recognize you. You didn't get a new body, but your body aged. Your body's what makes you world conscious. But that inward part of you, that soul spirit of a man, that's the real you. And though your outward body moved, that, that's a significant portion of you. That's where your personality comes from. That's where your thoughts and your conceptions come from and your consideration. It's not simply that man just sins in the flesh. The sin always starts in the inward part of the man. That's why it's diabolical. The best that society can do is to try to, out, uh, try to rein in the outward parts of a man. Can't do anything about his inward parts. They've yet to find a way in 6,000 years of human government to regulate what a man thinks. Or much less, what a man says. I read the news this week as a fellow got fined close to $50 million for some things he said. Cast aspersions upon people and slander and libel and all that's close to $50 million. But you know what? Once the settlement's reached, they really can't stop him from saying whatever he wants to say. But if God has your heart, if that inward part of man is purged and cleaned and walking with God, the outward man will always follow in lockstep. That's why the Lord Jesus said, where your heart is, there will your treasures be also. That's the way it works. Where you put your heart's desire, there your actions will be. So often, we become, as Psalm 50 speaks of, formality and hypocrisy, and we want to conform the outward man. And we, we put rules and policies, etc. in place, we conform the outward man. But the real problem is not the outward man. It's the inward man. And there's no ability to conform that inward man. There's no rule or policy that can be governed. And he's corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And he's wicked. And that inward part of man naturally, even from his birth, has a disposition to hate all there is about God. He has a disposition to be prideful and resistant and rebellious towards any authority in his life. And you know how he manifests all those evils? In the outward, by what he does. David said, I recognize that I am not what God wants. 
that God has prepared the human spirit with a grand capacity to understand and submit to His truth. Yet, the human spirit makes a choice, doesn't it? It can receive or reject. The last part of the section we'll look at this morning is this cleansing in 7 through 9. Three more petitions. It says in verse 7, Purge me, wash me. And then when you move down, he says, Blot from me. Yet again, blot out all, verse number 9, of mine iniquities. Cleanse me. Purge me. Leviticus chapter 4, I mentioned, had no covering or offering for premeditated sin. No ability for a burnt offering. He says, use hyssop. That's figurative language. Hyssop's what they used in the time of Moses' day. It's what they would sprinkle purity on the high priest with. It's what on the day uh, before their exodus or the evening before their exodus that they would take the lamb's blood and they would stir it with hyssop and they'd put it on the side post on the top of the door. It was symbolic. It has the idea of a full purging and a full cleaning. And he said, Lord, I would that you would clean me like Moses in the old day would proclaim the priest as being holy with the hyssop. So do unto me. Purge me. I need a direct intervention from a most holy God. Then he mentions in verse 7, wash me. Note that last phrase there in verse 7. What is it? I shall be whiter than snow. Can you remember anywhere else in your Bible that might be? It's in the first chapter of Isaiah. Come now. Verse 18, I think it is. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In the first part there he says, I will make your sins whiter than snow. Though they be like scarlet, they shall be White as snow. Isaiah follows historically David. Isaiah is reaching back and reciting portions of this very thing. That anyone, Isaiah 55, that would turn and submit them to the God of heaven, that God and God alone has the capacity to cleanse them, no matter how scarlet their sin might have been, no matter how uh, uh, awful and rebellious and impunitive the, their crime might have been, God and God alone can cleanse them. Verse 8, he speaks of the joy and the gladness, the praises of the congregation. In his current state, he could not enter in, but when he is washed, when he is washed, joy and gladness would be present. He speaks in verse 8 about the bones that thou hast broken. I think he's hearkening back to the 32nd Psalm there. His whole person is riddled with guilt and needed to be freed. Hide thy face from me and blot out, verse number 9, all mine iniquities. Blot out. Scraping away as it will. Undoing what was done. It's the opposite, really. Was it Pilate in the New Testament? What I have written, I have written. David saying, blot it out. Change the course. Undo what I have done. Scrape it away. Hide thy face from me. Look away from me. Don't remember me in the state that I am currently in. My, I thank God for those words of hope in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
he hath made him that knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. One day every man is going to stand and give an account unto God. A God that knows all, that remembers all. David's begging, don't remember me like I am. In these first nine verses, the undercurrent, the overarching frame that links it all together is a distinctive need for true forgiveness from God. Yet without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission from sin. Jesus Christ shed blood is the only agent of forgiveness that sinners have. It's the only way to have your sins cleansed. It's the only way in which one is able to commune with God. And it is the only way that is available by faith if one will just look to the Lamb of God. Do you remember John chapter 3? Old Nicodemus came unto Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know that thou art a master. Come from God. No man can do these miracles I'll do except God be with him. He said, marvel not that I say unto thee, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus clues on this matter. My, if he could just get enough hyssop. They just have enough outward conformity. We just keep the sacrifices, that would be good enough. But Jesus said in verse number 5, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. And Nicodemus' response, How can a man be born when he is old? The Lord speaks to him, he said, Nicodemus, meteorologically, God ascribed him nature, for nature is God's handiwork. It shows us a glimpse into his character, into his power, and to his planning and knowledge and preparation. He said, You seeth the wind thou have, and knoweth whither it listeth it bloweth. So is everyone that's born by the Spirit of God. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In Numbers 22, you know what the cry was? The sin... They had antagonized God by their rebellion and their thanklessness. God sent fiery serpents in among them. They bit the people. The people did not die immediately. They agonized and then died. The burning sensation, the swelling, the venom permeating their entire bodies soon to cause it to shut. There's no hope. They prayed to Moses. God said, Make of thee a brazen serpent like unto these that I have judged thee with. And lift it up on a pole, and whosoever would look would live. My friend, I can't imagine. That judgment's fallen upon practically all the people of Israel. They're all bitten by this venom. And yet there's only two groups of people that are present. All of them still bear in their visage the teeth marks. All of them had been bitten. Death awaits them all, but to those that simply by faith would look and cry to God for help, the characteristic of His mercy, they shall be saved. By the way, it wasn't limited in its atonement either, was it? What would have happened if every one of them would have looked? What would have happened? Every one of them would have lived. 
Every last one of them. Let me ask you another question. Since we're talking about soteriology in the closing portion of the message. What about those that looked and then looked away? They looked by faith and then stopped looking. What would happen? The venom began to creep back in there again. Is that what happened? They looked and the judgment ceased. They never lost that. It wasn't a matter of keeping their eyes consistently fixed on that that saved them. Just that simple action by faith brought the ceasing of judgment. It didn't start all over again when they looked away. What are you talking about? Same way your salvation is. It's for anybody that'll look. And once there's a look of faith, there's a ceasing of future judgment. Paul highlights this same thing in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. How'd you get there? Says Nicodemus. I looked by faith to the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Full forgiveness. It's the very merciful characteristic of our God. Yet it requires faith to receive. And in context with the 51st Psalm, when we're talking about a believer's forgiveness, so that his communion is restored, not his salvation, his communion, his fellowship, if you will. There's some important aspects of it. A personal acknowledgement. A personal cry. A personal confession. A guaranteed washing. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up on verse number 10. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And the whole tenor of the psalm changes as it was from a minor to a major chord. From a dirge to a victorious announcement. Thou shalt be pleased. He concludes in verse number 19. Jesus Christ, the hope of forgiveness. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 